Chapter Seven of the Turmoil. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neil Donnelly. The Turmoil, Volume One of the Growth Trilogy by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Seven. Mrs. Vertrees sat up for her daughter, Mr. Vertrees having retired after a restless evening, not much soothed by the society of his landseers. Mary had taken a key, insisting that he should not come for her, and seeming confident that she would not lack for escort. Nor did the sequel prove her confidence unwarranted. But Mrs. Vertrees had a long vigil of it. She was not the woman to make herself easy— no servant had ever seen her in a wrapper, and with her hair and dress and her shoes just what they had been when she returned from the afternoon's call, she sat through the slow night hours in a stiff little chair under the gaslight in her own room, which was directly over the front hall. There, book in hand, she employed the time in her own reminiscences, though it was her belief that she was reading Madame de Remusat's her thoughts went backward into her life and into her husband's, and the deeper into the past they went, the brighter the picture they brought her. And there is tragedy. Like her husband, she thought backward because she did not dare think forward definitely. What thinking forward this troubled couple ventured took the form of a slender hope which neither of them could have borne to hear put in words. And yet they had talked it over, day after day, from the very hour when they heard Sheridan was to build his new house next door. For so quickly does any ideal of human behavior become an antique, their youth was of the innocent old days, so dead, of breeding and gentility, and no craft had been more straightly trained upon them than that of talking about things without mentioning them. Herein was marked the most vital difference between Mr. and Mrs. Vertrees and their big new neighbor. Sheridan, though his youth was of the same epoch, knew nothing of such matters. He had been chopping wood for the morning fire in the country grocery while they were still dancing. It was after one o'clock when Mrs. Vertrees heard steps and the delicate clinking of the key in the lock, and then, with the opening of the door, Mary's laugh, and, "'Yes, if you aren't afraid,' Tomorrow. The door closed, and she rushed upstairs, bringing with her a breath of cold and bracing air into her mother's room. Yes, she said, before Mrs. Vertrees could speak, he brought me home. She let her cloak fall upon the bed, and drawing an old red velvet rocking chair forward, sat beside her mother after giving her a light pat upon the shoulder and a hearty kiss upon the cheek. Mama, Mary exclaimed, when Mrs. Vertrees had expressed the hope that she had enjoyed the evening and had not caught cold, why don't you ask me? This inquiry obviously made her mother uncomfortable. I don't, she faltered. Ask you what, Mary? How I got along and what he's like. Mary! Oh, it isn't distressing, said Mary, and I got along so fast. She broke off to laugh. Continuing then, but that's the way I went at it, of course. We are in a hurry, aren't we? I don't know what you mean, Mrs. Vertrees insisted, shaking her head plaintively. Yes, said Mary, I'm going out in his car with him tomorrow afternoon, and to the theatre the next night. 
but I stopped it there. You see, after you give the first push, you must leave it to them while you pretend to run away. My dear, I don't know what to— What to make of anything, Mary finished for her. So that's all right. Now I'll tell you all about it. It was gorgeous and deafening and teetotal. We could have lived a year on it. I'm not good at figures, but— I calculated that if we lived six months on poor old Charlie and Ned and the station wagon and the Victoria, we could manage at least twice as long on the cost of the housewarming. I think the orchids alone would have lasted us a couple of months. There they were before me, but I couldn't steal them and sell them, and so, well, so I did what I could. She leaned back and laughed reassuringly to her troubled mother. It seemed to be a success— what I could, she said, clasping her hands behind her neck and stirring the rocker to motion as a rhythmic accompaniment to her narrative. The girl Edith and her sister-in-law, Mrs. Roscoe Sheridan, were too anxious about the effect of things on me. The father is worth a bushel of both of them, if they knew it. He's what he is. I like him. She paused reflectively, continuing, Edith's interested in that Lamhorn boy. He's good-looking and not stupid, but I think he's— She interrupted herself with a cheery outcry. Oh, I mustn't be calling him names. If he's trying to make Edith like him, I ought to respect him as a colleague. I don't understand a thing you're talking about, Mrs. Vertrees complained. All the better. Well, he's a bad lot, that Lamhorn boy. Everybody's always known that. But the Sheridans don't know the everybody's that know. He sat between Edith and Mrs. Roscoe Sheridan. She's like those people you wondered about at the theater the last time we went, dressed in ball gowns, bound to show their clothes and jewels somewhere. She flatters the father, and so did I, for that matter, but not that way. I treated him outrageously. Mary! That's what flattered him. After dinner he made the whole regiment of us follow him all over the house while he lectured like a guide on the Palatine. He gave dimensions and costs, and the whole billin' of them listened as if they thought he intended to make them a present of the house. What he was proudest of was the plumbing and that Bay of Naples panorama in the hall. He made us look at all the plumbing, bathrooms, and everywhere else, and then he made us look at the Bay of Naples. He said it was a hundred and eleven feet long, but I think it's more. And he led us all into the ready-made library to see a poem Edith had taken a prize with at school. They'd had it printed in gold letters and framed in mother-of-pearl. But the poem itself was rather simple and wistful and nice. He read it to us, though Edith tried to stop him. She was modest about it, and said she'd never written anything else. And then, after a while, Mrs. Roscoe Sheridan asked me to come across the street to her house with them, her husband and Edith and Mr. Lamhorn and Jim Sheridan. Mrs. Vertrees was shocked. "'Jim!' she exclaimed. "'Mary, please!' "'Of course,' said Mary. "'I'll make it as easy for you as I can, Mama." Mr. James Sheridan, Jr. We went over there, and Mrs. Roscoe explained that the men were all dying for a drink. 
though I noticed that Mr. Lamhorn was the only one near death's door on that account. Edith and Mrs. Roscoe said they knew I'd been bored at the dinner, they were objectionably apologetic about it, and they seemed to think now we were going to have a good time to make up for it. But I hadn't been bored at the dinner, I'd been amused, and the good time at Mrs. Roscoe's was horribly, horribly stupid. But Mary, her mother began, is, is, and she seemed unable to complete the question. Never mind, Mama, I'll say it. Is Mr. James Sheridan, Jr. stupid? I'm sure he's not at all stupid about business. Otherwise, oh, what right have I to be calling people stupid because they're not exactly my kind? On the big dinner table they had enormous icing models of the Sheridan building. Oh, no, Mrs. Vertries cried. Surely not. Yes, and two other things of that kind, I don't know what. But after all, I wondered if they were so bad, if I'd been at a dinner at a palace in Italy, and a relief or inscription on one of the old silver pieces had referred to some great deed or achievement of the family, I shouldn't have felt superior. I'd have thought it picturesque and stately. I'd have been impressed. And what's the real difference? The icing is temporary, and that's much more modest, isn't it? And why is it vulgar to feel important more on account of something you've done yourself than because of something one of your ancestors did? Besides, if we go back a few generations, we've all got such hundreds of ancestors it seems idiotic to go picking out one or two to be proud of ourselves about. Well then, Mama, I managed not to feel superior to Mr. James Sheridan, Jr., because he didn't see anything out of place in the Sheridan building in sugar. Mrs. Vertree's expression had lost none of its anxiety pending the conclusion of this lively bit of analysis, and she shook her head gravely. My dear, dear child, she said, it seems to me it looks... I'm afraid... Say as much of it as you can, Mama, said Mary encouragingly. I can get it, if you'll just give me one key word. Everything you say, Mrs. Vertries began timidly, seems to have the air of... It is as if you were seeking to... to make yourself... Oh, I see. You mean I sound as if I were trying to force myself to like him. Not exactly, Mary. That wasn't quite what I meant, said Mrs. Vertries, speaking direct untruth with perfect unconsciousness. But you said that that you found the latter part of the evening at young Mrs. Sheridan's unentertaining, and as Mr. James Sheridan was there, and I saw more of him than at dinner, and had a horribly stupid time in spite of that, you think I... And then it was Mary who left the deduction unfinished. Mrs. Vertries nodded, and though both the mother and the daughter understood, Mary felt it better to make the understanding definite. "'Well,' she asked gravely, "'is there anything else I can do? You and Papa don't want me to do anything that distresses me, and so, as this is the only thing to be done, it seems it's up to me not to let it distress me. That's all there is about it, isn't it?' "'But nothing must distress you,' the mother cried. "'That's what I say,' said Mary cheerfully, "'and so it doesn't. 
It's all right. She rose and took her cloak over her arm, as if to go to her own room. But on the way to the door she stopped, and stood leaning against the foot of the bed, contemplating a threadbare rug at her feet. Mother, you've told me a thousand times that it doesn't really matter whom a girl marries. No, no, Mrs. Virgis protested. I never said such a... No, not in words. I mean what you meant. It's true, isn't it, that marriage really is not a bed of roses, but a field of battle? To get right down to it, a girl could fight it out with anybody, couldn't she? One man as well as another? Oh, my dear, I'm sure your father and I... Yes, yes, said Mary indulgently. I don't mean you and Papa, but isn't it propinquity that makes marriages? Uh, so many people say so. There must be something in it. Mary, I can't bear for you to talk like that, and Mrs. Vertrees lifted pleading eyes to her daughter, eyes that begged to be spared. It sounds almost reckless. Mary caught the appeal, came to her and kissed her gaily. Never fret, dear. I'm not likely to do anything I don't want to do. I've always been too thorough-going a little pig, and if it is propinquity that does our choosing for us, well, at least no girl in the world could ask for more than that. How could there be any more propinquity than the very house next door? She gave her mother a final kiss and went gaily all the way to the door this time, pausing for her postscript with her hand on the knob. Oh, the one that caught me looking in the window, Mama, the youngest one? Did he speak of it? Mrs. Vertrees asked, apprehensively. No, he didn't speak at all, that I saw to anyone. I didn't meet him, but he isn't insane, I'm sure, or if he is, he has long intervals when he's not. Mr. James Sheridan mentioned that he lived at home when he was well enough, and it may be he's only an invalid. He looks dreadfully ill, but he has pleasant eyes, and it struck me that if, if one were in the Sheridan family, she laughed a little ruefully, he might be interesting to talk to sometimes, when there was too much stocks and bonds. I didn't see him after dinner. There must be something wrong with him, said Mrs. Vertrees. They'd have introduced him if there wasn't. I don't know. He's been ill so much, and away so much. Sometimes people like that just don't seem to count in a family. His father spoke of sending him back to a machine shop or some sort. I suppose he meant when the poor thing gets better. I glanced at him just then, when Mr. Sheridan mentioned him, and he happened to be looking straight at me. And he was pathetic-looking enough before that, but the most tragic change came over him. He seemed just to die, right there at the table. You mean when his father spoke of sending him to the shop place? Yes. Mr. Sheridan must be very unfeeling. No, said Mary thoughtfully, I don't think he is, but he might be uncomprehending, and certainly he's the kind of man to do anything he once sets out to do. But I wish I hadn't been looking at that poor boy just then. I'm afraid I'll keep remembering. I wouldn't, Mrs. Vertrees smiled faintly, and in her smile there was the remotest ghost of a genteel roguishness. I'd keep my mind on pleasanter things, Mary. Mary laughed and nodded. 
Yes, indeed. Plenty pleasant enough, and probably, if all were known, too good, even for me. And when she had gone, Mrs. Vertrees drew a long breath, as if a burden were off her mind, and, smiling, began to undress in a gentle reverie. End of chapter 7